This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome to Evidence for Faith, where we help believers become thinkers, and thinkers become believers. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And today we're going to be continuing our topic of the problems with the evidence for evolution. The rest of you will be listening online on our podcast and on four other stations by a recording, but if you do listen to us and you email us, please let us know what station you're listening to us on. We're heard on Albuquerque, New Mexico at KXKS, York, PA on station WYYC, Omaha, KLNG, and Alexandria, Louisiana on KWDF. So please indicate how you listen to us when you write in. Kirk, I was gone last week, but you did a wonderful job interviewing Joe McGittigan. Oh, I think Joe did the good job. Yeah, he, <laughs> he did was, a he great job. He was a job, very interesting he? interviewee. And for somebody with no radio experience, I thought he did a fine job. Yeah, great. Yep. Well, I guess I told people to email us, but I don't think I told them where to email us. So you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number for faith.com. We also have a website, obviously, evidenceforfaith.com, where you can listen to previous archived shows. Which many of our listeners do. Yep. We get listeners from all over the world, apparently, on the internet. Yes, we do. We've got a couple of emails from them, but Two news items. I just wanted to get these news items out of the way. I was really laughing a few weeks ago when these things came through because they were a day apart. Listen to this headline, Kirk. Surprise, no warming in last 11 years. <laughs> so this is from a research team at Berkeley. and Berserkley, you mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the next day, the headline was, World headed for irreversible climate change in five years. Whoa. IEA warns. So, you know, the, the truth is that Berkeley was right. There hasn't been any temperature change in the past 11 years. We've talked about that on past shows. They're not the first ones to notice the fact that uh, there isn't any temperature increase. And in fact, temperature is probably headed down for a little while at least. And we know the reasons now why, because the experiments have been done. And surprise, it's not carbon dioxide. It is actually solar heating from the sun. So, But apparently that's not good enough for left-wing extremists. They have to hang on to their old, outdated scientific theories, just like other old, outdated scientific theories like evolution that we'll be talking about today (laughs) that people cling to. Uh, because it gives them comfort. It really is amazing, some of the evidence, and we've been discussing it on this show in the past uh, month or so. Some of the new evidence that's coming out really uh, falls heavily on the side of creationism. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And we'll be talking about more of that. Let's see, I'll just finish up with this 
article about the world headed for irreversible climate change. That's from The Guardian in the UK from the International Energy Agency. And basically, they just, this is not really a scientific observation. They're just saying that, oh, no, oh, no, we've, we're producing record amounts of carbon dioxide. Oh, no, isn't that awful? So, therefore, the world is going to fall apart. Mm. No evidence that the world is going to fall apart. And, in fact, I wonder why the Earth isn't heating up if we've got record amounts of carbon dioxide. Maybe it's because there's no connection. <laughs> Do you think? You think? <laughs> so, but um, there's no straightening out the left. It's also interesting, uh, I don't know the exact figures, but I've read many times that uh, one volcanic eruption releases more carbon dioxide and gases and everything into the atmosphere than I don't I'm not this figure probably isn't exact but like years of you know the exhaust from all the automobiles in the world far more yep and yet the earth manages to balance that out that's true and in fact after major volcanic eruptions the earth actually gets colder yeah right because of the dust in the atmosphere or something that's right it increases the albedo and the light gets reflected away and guess what that's the actual mechanism that scientists have discovered over the past 10 years that actually causes the warming the major warming and cooling of the earth not greenhouse gases right which by the way carbon dioxide is not even the, the major one it's it's far far less effective a warming gas than water vapor is so and if you were actually really concerned about the temperature of the earth and you thought that it was greenhouse gases, you would move to remove water vapor, not carbon dioxide. Right. And but it's amazing how well the earth is designed that it's able to compensate when these things happen. It's been yeah. doing it for thousands of years. Yep. And, and that's part of their problem is that they think the earth isn't designed. They think the earth is just a random happenstance. And since it's so unlikely that anything that supports life could even exist in the entire universe, they know that life is balanced on a razor's edge and just the slightest thing could tip it over. Huh. So that's, that would be a prediction from evolution theory. And it turns out it's false that, in fact, the earth is quite a well-balanced habitat for life. Yeah, it's worked so far. <laughs> yeah, not too bad. Well, we've gotten a couple of emails, so both of them are mercifully short. <laughs> One is from Felipe, so just a, a quick note to us. He, Felipe has written before, for those who might not be familiar with him, he's a an atheist from Norway who we had some quite long discussions in the past. So he's been listening to our series on the evidence against evolution, and he comments, he says, I think using the case of breeding to support your argument was not the best choice. Breeding is actually an artificial selection with intent to limit the genetic variation in a population. Okay? Mm -hmm. We see the similar effect with natural selection in humans. Populations in Africa have much more genetic diversity than humans in Europe. So I guess Felipe doesn't realize that he's contradicting himself. In the first paragraph, he says that breeding is not a good choice to show intelligent design. And then he says, look, it's happening in in the human population. Right. Well, that's the whole point. We're trying to show what's happening in the human population. (laughs) So, in fact, intelligent design shows that you start out with genetic, a lot of genetic information, 
And then as populations spread out over the Earth, as scientists have shown that the human population has spread out over the Earth, the genetic information continues to decrease and decrease. And so the same with breeding. If you take a wild-type animal like a, a wolf and you breed it into a specialized animal that has a certain niche, guess what? It has less genetic information in it. That's the whole point, Felipe. That proves intelligent design. It proves that evolution is false because it's the exact opposite of what evolution claims to do. Evolution claims to increase the amount of genetic information, not decrease it. Right. So thank you, Felipe, for proving intelligent design. We, <laughs> this has got to be one for the archives. If, if there's a uh, archive for famous emails. We have to save that. We'll have this. to we'll have to start one on our website. Apparently, we do. So, <laughs> then this second one was from a new listener by the name of Nick, who's from the UK. And Nick says, "I have just listened to your podcast on evolution and its truth." In quotes, I have debated Christians on this topic in the past. And it always surprises me how vociferous they can be about the topic whilst knowing very little about it. Listening to your podcast, I must say, I was disappointed. You are either disingenuous or you have insufficient knowledge of the theory. I will assume the latter. I propose you read up on the subject before you expound on it. I would like to add you do not prove alternative, your alternative, sorry, creationism slash intelligent design by disproving evolution. To believe you can is a logical fallacy. Apologists would be better off developing a theory that fits known data better and more importantly makes more predictions than evolution. Okay, quite the challenge from Nick from the UK. We do have an alternate theory that explains the evidence better than evolution. We call it biblical creationism. <laughs> there you go. So, but he's saying that if you disprove evolution, that doesn't prove your point. Well, to an extent, that's true. But it's interesting also that evolutionists often attack creationism and use that as evidence for evolution. That, well, you got it right. That's, so how that's come they can right. do that, but we can't do it? Exactly. So, so not only are they disingenuous about that, but in fact, when there are only two choices, then you can. Then proving one of them is not the correct choice does prove the other one. Yeah. It, so it this is perfectly logical. Right. It's a, it takes a logical form of A or B. Right. Not A, therefore B. And that is perfectly sound logically. Yep. So the only way that this could not be true, that it, if it would be a false logical fallacy, is if there were three choices, then, of course, you couldn't say not A, therefore C, because you're forgetting about B. Right. Or if A or B are partly, could be partly somehow, you could have some theory where it's uh, partly evolution, part God, then, the, then that might be another option. So, I don't know if that would so really count as a third it. option, though, would it, if it's, if it's a combination of the existing two? It's well, just a variation of the first two. Yeah, but you still, if uh, that, it still logically would be incorrect if, if there was such a thing as A plus B as a possibility. But as we've looked in past shows, um, it's not really a possibility. Theistic evolution just doesn't work out because it really is a contradiction. Right. Either life on this planet is unguided or it's guided. Right. Evolution says it's unguided. 
Theism says it's guided. So there really isn't a a mixture, even though some people do try to hold it. Even many secular scientists will admit there's only two possibilities, either creation or evolution. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Even the evolutionists can't come up with a third way. Right. So I guess he doesn't listen to the show or he hasn't listened to many of the past shows because he says that he claims that we're only knocking evolution. We're not giving any positive evidence for intelligent design. And in fact, we actually do. Uh, yes. We've given, done, spent many, many shows on the evidence for intelligent design. Yes, we have. So, and he claims that evolution has, is a better predictor of the data. Really? That, I, you know, he doesn't say how it is, but just off the top of my head, I can think of things like, well, what about the origin of life? How come there's no theory on the origin of life? How does evolution explain the Cambrian explosion? I was just teaching on the Cambrian explosion this morning and completely does not match and is a complete refutation of the, the theory of evolution. You know, irreducible complexity, specified complexity, the transitional fossils or the lack thereof, all of these things falsify evolution and fit with the data expected from intelligent design. So, Nick, I think you made a mistake there in your email, but you say you have debated Christians on this topic on the past, and we'd love to have you on the show if you'd like to debate. If you feel up to it, we'd be we'd welcome you. Well, if you're it's just nice that we us. have listeners in uh, the United Kingdom, though that's kind of neat. Well, they're a little they're even closer than the ones uh, we've got listeners in Australia and Africa and all over the world. So they're practically neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking today on evolution and some of the problems with the evolutionary theory. It's a series we've been doing for the past couple of weeks. Before we do dive in, Kirk, I do want to tell people the reason I was gone last week is I was in San Francisco for six days. I was at the Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting which holds its meeting at the same time as the Evangelical Theology Society and also the Near Eastern Association, which is an archaeology group. So there were a lot of things going on at the conference. Each day, you know, I think the a couple of weeks ago I went to one in North Carolina and I was telling you how each hour there were 10 choices of 10 different classes. Mm-hmm. Well, I counted up the choices that we had each hour for those days there were 30 different choices each wow. hour. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot going on, thousands and thousands of theologians and philosophers and archaeologists from all over the world that had come to deliver papers to each other and talk about the latest discoveries. I, I made a note here of a couple that I thought would be of particular interest to our listeners. This was a presentation by an archaeologist, Charles Ailing, and he did a paper on the... A concept of the vizier or the title of the vizier in Egypt during the time of Joseph. Now, you know, as time goes by, we keep learning more and more about the culture of the Egyptians. And as we've shown in past shows, it matches precisely with the biblical narrative of the culture at that time. Uh And while critics claim that the Old Testament was written about 500 B.C., they're writing about things that supposedly happened 15 100 to 2000 BC, and amazingly, they get it just right. So, it turns out that all these references to viziers and things turn out historically to be correct. 
we know about a vizier of Sesostris III, and so this is immediately after the time of Joseph. So it's very likely his name is was Kumhotep. We found an intact tomb of his, so they have a lot of information about Kumhotep. And Kumhotep, timing-wise, he would have fallen right after Joseph. So he would have been the vizier after Joseph. Mm-hmm. One of the things he pointed out was that paleoclimatology has shown that there was a massive famine in this region at precisely the right time, the reign of Sesostris III. So that was an interesting addition to evidence for the biblical narrative. And then one of the things that had been criticized in the Bible is that Joseph is called the chief steward and the vizier. So it was not thought that this was very common And in fact, it was rare to have both titles, but it's also happened that the vizier after Joseph, Kumhotep, also had both titles. So he was chief steward and vizier. So even though it was rare to have both titles, it was an accepted practice. So that proves that the biblical account was correct also. Also, Kumhotep had the same, had the title father to Pharaoh, which is also mentioned in scripture as a title for Joseph. Hmm. And it's turns out that we've learned that the viziers were the ones who welcomed foreign dignitaries and controlled access to Pharaoh. So again, when Joseph's family came down to purchase grain from Pharaoh, they were seen by Joseph because they were visiting foreign dignitaries. Mm -hmm. So all of that correlates precisely with the Old Testament. Amazing. Yep. More and more evidence continues to support it. Then there was this terrific talk by William Lane Craig where he debunked Stephen Hawking's book, the recent book where he claimed that philosophy is dead. And I won't go into it too much because we've actually talked about that on the show, but I just thought it was worth mentioning that William Lane Craig, here's this brilliant man. He's two earned doctorates, two earned PhDs, and the evolutionists are afraid to debate him. So Richard Dawkins refuses, he just recently refused a couple of weeks ago to debate Dr. Craig. And if you watch his debates on YouTube, you'll see why, because he generally just demolishes the people that he's debating and just not out of rhetorical flair or something like that, but just out of pure logic, he just crushes them. Hmm. Have you ever seen Dr. Craig debate? No, I haven't. I've looked at his website, and I've read transcripts of some of his debates, but I've never actually seen him. Yep, it, it's worth it. I recommend it. It's a, If you've got 10 minutes of time and you want to see something really interesting, look up a William Lane Craig debate and pick your favorite atheist and <laughs> see how, how he gets handled, how he gets smacked down by Dr. Craig. Well, I'd love to see him uh, debate Hawkins. Well, maybe they could both use voice synthesizers, so it would be an even match. <laughs> So let's see. Then I think the last one that is of interest was uh, Dr. John Bloom, who was one of my professors from Biola. He also is a double PhD. He is PhD in physics and a PhD in Near Eastern studies. So a fascinating combination. I had my physics courses and my courses on the Big Bang from Dr. Bloom at Biola. So this was an interesting chance to hear him talk about archaeology because he also has a PhD in Near Eastern studies. And he went over Kirk, you'll like this, 10 of the most important archaeological studies that prove the Bible. Hmm. So one of the things he, he first started focusing on is some of the 
interesting characters that you run across. In the Bible, there are, are lots of mentions of small characters. They're just passing, you know, they get a, a line or two in the Bible. And then when you dig up something archaeological that specifically references that person, that is just an amazing thing. It just proves to you how detailed and how true the Bible really is. Mm-hmm. So the first, his first item was the, a clay bullet, uh, which is a seal. It's a clay seal that's used to seal documents. And stamped on that seal, it says, Baruch, son of Neriah, the scribe. Well, this is the exact scribe who wrote down the book of Jeremiah in the city of David. So this is part of the archaeological dig at the city of David. And here you have the name of a person who was mentioned in the Bible and wrote one of the books of the Bible. Wow. Uh, then the, the, his second most astounding discovery is a receipt from the treasury in Babylon. And it actually mentioned this is a receipt for a, a sacrifice that the treasurer gave at the temple. And there is the guy's name, Nebo Sarsakim, the treasurer. And this person is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. <laughs> so he was just pointing out that, you know, these people are real. And we have evidence that they're real. Hmm. Then number three was the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. And this was talking about a successful campaign against Israel in 841 B.C. And it specifically mentions, again, more people from the Bible, Jehu, son of Omni, specifically mentioned. And it proves that Israel really did exist at that time. Again, critics claim that Israel really wasn't a society until 500 BC. Let's see. The fourth, number four, was found in Nebuchadnezzar's palace area, and it's a ration list for the palace. And one of the items on the list of rations was food for Jehoiakim, king of Judah, who was kept as a prisoner. And this is described in 2 Kings 25, 27. And critics have said, that this verse talks of it as if Jehoiakim was still alive. And the assumption is that when Jehoiakim was overrun by Nebuchadnezzar, that he would have been killed. And here we find the very ration list that describes that, no, Jehoiakim was kept in the palace, well-treated, and well-fed. Then number five is the Tel Dan seal, discovered in 1993. And it's the first mention of Israel and the house of David. So again, you know, they used to say David was a fictitious character. Nope, sorry. Turns out that there really was such a person. Item number six is the Ella Fortress, which is found at a place called Kerbet Kayafa. And this dates to the time of David and Solomon. So this is about 1000 BC. And the discovery shows that this is a huge fortress complex. Now, it would take a large nation with enough money and power to be able to build a fortress this big. And it had, the architecture was in the typical Hebrew style. So the architecture is right, but the big thing is that it's so, such a massive fortress that, that Israel had to be a large nation at the time of David and, and Solomon, which of course the <coughs> critics claim it wasn't. Hmm. Then at that site, there was an ostracon or some writing that was found where it talks about things. These weren't actual Bible verses, but they were very biblically sounding. They were talking about the care for widows, the importance of the care for widows and the poor. 
and the kinds of things that are talked about in, in the Old Testament. So again, fitting exactly with what the Bible claims. Then there, number eight was the discovery of David's palace, and Nancy and I got to see that on a tour of Israel last year. It was fascinating. Or actually, I guess that was early this year we went, in the spring. Let's see, number nine, the Katif Hinnan Cemetery, where something, a silver amulet was called, discovered, and this, this presents us with the earliest actual Old Testament writing. It's, a, it's the verses number 6, 24 through 26, and it's dated to 587 BC, so even before what the critics previously claimed that, that the Old Testament had been written. So here we have actual verses from prior to that time. Then, let's see, the final one is, well, number 10, actually he went ahead and did 11 of them, but the 10th one is P52. This is the earliest papyrus that we have, and it contains verses from John 18. And the reason it's so important is because skeptics had said that the book of John had not been written until after 160 AD. And the reason is because the book of John clearly describes Jesus as God. And so critics said that this is a late development, that nobody thought of Jesus as God until second, late in the second century. So they dated the book of John to about 160. Well, this papyrus dates to 125. So well before that time, and further evidence that we've talked about in past shows shows that it was actually written probably around 60 AD. So then he tacked on an extra one, which, of course, you can't really do a list like this without the Dead Sea Scrolls. Hmm. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've done a whole show on the Dead Sea Scrolls, were date to about 150 BC, and they were Old Testament, full books of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah was a full book, multiple copies, several copies of you know each of the books. And if you look at the time gap, it was about almost 1,200 years between the oldest copy that we had prior to that. The oldest copy we had was 1010 AD, and these ones go all the way back to 150 BC. And in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, there was only 17 letters different, of which 10 of them were spelling differences, four were style differences, and the only actual difference was three letters that make up the word light, and it didn't even change the meaning of the sentence it was in. Hmm. So, amazing discoveries from the world of archaeology, brought to you by Evidence for Faith. If you're just joining us, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And it is time, Kirk, to get into our topic for the day. We want to get back to the topic of evolution and try to look at some more problems with evolution. You know, just one more comment on those discoveries, though. I'm surprised that uh, they didn't include the one uh, a few years ago where they found the pavement that had Pontius Pilate's name oh, carved on it. absolutely. Yeah, you know, and really this kind of a list could just go on and on and on. Right. So I he guess just picked what he were, thought were the top ten, but there's many more. Yeah, these were his ten favorites. Right. So, and that is, of course, another example of a real person that the skeptic said, no, this person didn't really exist. Yep. Well, guess what? Turns out he did. And, of course, they said for a long time the Hittites, the race of Hittites didn't exist until they found 
definitive、yep. evidence of them, and they were a major、yep. civilization. But they were mentioned first in the Bibles, where we learned about them. That's right, and thousands and thousands of clay tablets from the Hittite civilization that gave us an exact. Image of what their culture was really like, and surprise, surprise, it exactly matches the culture described in the Bible.、Oh, so amazing. amazing how those <laughs>、uh, ancient people, writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, managed to know all this stuff that was going on. Yeah, right, isn't it? So, yep.、Uh, so it turns out, no, they were writing at the actual time that they lived in, you know, 2000 BC. Right. Okay.、Right. Evolution. Yeah, let's get into our topic, evolution. We, I guess, I just want to make a brief mention of the concept of embryological recapitulation. Probably, a lot of people remember when they were in school that they were taught that embryos go through the changes that evolution did. So that you know, when you're in your mother's womb, you're you're you actually look like a little fish, and then you you look like a, or I guess you start out as a little amoeba, and then you look like a fish, and you have gill slits and Things like that, and you go、right. through the reptilian stage and the mammalian stage. Right. Well, <laughs> we now know that those embryological drawings from Haeckel were actually faked, and there's a, a funny total fraud. <laughs> yep. So there's a funny poster that I've seen that has the Haeckel embryos and shows the little, you know, the comparisons and. Underneath it, it says gill slits. It says we have them, we need them. So what if the drawings were faked? Evolutionary truth needs a little help now and then. <laughs> so one of the problems with evolution is that really you would actually expect something like this to occur, but in reality, it turns out that the embryo doesn't follow the same pathway as evolution supposedly did. So that in fact. The further back you go, the more different the embryos are. Yeah.、Uh, in different body types. And they didn't so, find this out until relatively recently, when somebody decided to photograph all of these different embryos to see what they really looked like and see if they matched,、uh, you know, Haeckel's drawings. And they didn't match at all. That's right. Yep. Well, it was a it was a real rediscovery because the drawings were recognized as fakes right away, and Haeckel was kicked out of his university. But that didn't really matter to the evolutionists because, like the quotation said, evolutionary truth needs a little help now and then.、Huh. I've even read rec-、uh, fairly recently that there are some、uh, science books that still have those charts in them. Oh, absolutely. Yes, they do. Yep.、Well, Amazing. There's an evidence, Kirk. You've probably heard this, and one of my students was was telling me that in college she heard this thing from a professor about the chimp-human similarities and how this is evidence for evolution. Oh yeah. So you'll hear evolutionists claim that the chimp DNA is 98% similar to human DNA. Mm-hmm. So you hear this a lot.、Um, so what's well, the truth about that? Well, I guess that proves that? evolution, right? Yeah, there you go. Might as well pack it up and go home. Yep, there you go. Well, actually, you know, and that is a good point. That it really doesn't matter. I mean, you can look at a chimpanzee and see that it's sort of similar to a human being. So, just to say that the DNA is ninety-eight percent similar <laughs> to human DNA, that really isn't saying anything. I mean, that doesn't prove common ancestry. You would just It would just show you that okay, well, the I guess the difference between the two is contained contained in that two percent. 
Right. That's all you would think and say, wow, that's a really important 2%. But come on, there are a few differences between chimps and humans, too. I mean, when's the last time you went to the zoo and looked at one of the chimps and said, oh, Uncle Harry, how are you? Oh, I'm sorry. You're actually a chimp. I I mistook you for my uncle. (laughs) Right. That's right. So what people don't realize is that these comparisons are, are made on only small segments of DNA that were that are already known to be similar. They'll take similar gene segments for proteins that are made in the chimp body and in the human body, and then they'll compare them. And that's where they get these numbers from. Right. And in reality, it's not even 98%. The actual number is like 95%. And the, the study, the most famous study of this that was done, it's 95%. But, you know... Like like they say, sometimes evolution needs a little help, so it manages to bump its way up to 97, 98, or I've even heard 99%. I like this other statement you have in your notes here concerning this, that it says, using similar calculations, humans are also a 50% match to bananas. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So That means we're related to bananas, right? <laughs> exactly. And, yeah, as far as that goes is, you know, if you're going by percentage and you're trying to prove uh, common ancestry, wouldn't 10% prove common ancestry? I mean, you know, if there's anything the same at all, that would theoretically be proof for common ancestry. I guess so, yeah. So it's a kind of a ridiculous statement because you can't, it can't be falsified. The only way that if you're going to say that any similarity is caused by common ancestry, then the only way that there could be it could be falsified as if there was zero similarity, right? Um, which would mean that each organism is completely a different type of DNA. And, of course, we know that's not true. And, of course, we why all, can't you say if there are similarities that there was a common designer? Of course, but they don't want to say that. They, no. they would go there. So one of the biggest differences between humans and chimps is not what proteins are made, but how they're regulated, right? I mean... <laughs> You know, oh, I thought you were going to say one of the major differences was that chimps were smarter. Oh, <laughs> I guess, than some. Now, how do the evolutionists explain that the chimp genome is 10 to 12% larger than humans' genome? I well, don't right know. away, you can see that there's a problem with this 95% or 98%. Right. How is that possible? Well, the, you know, and that's really true. The chimp genome is bigger, so right away, you know, some kind of fudging is going on. Yeah. In reality, there's extremely large blocks of dissimilarity and in a number of key chromosomes and, you know, marked structural differences in the entire Y male chromosome. They're really not the same at all. So, you know, to say just to throw out this blanket, you know, 95 percent just really doesn't really doesn't add up. This is really nitpicking that doesn't prove evolution one way or the other. Right. And if you look at that study where they, they talk about the 95%, it really does add up to a lot. I mean, you're talking about 35 million base pair changes. So that's an incredible amount, and mm-hmm. that can hold a lot of information. Right. It's 35 million base pair changes, 5 million indels, which are parts of genes, and 689 extra genes in humans. So really a lot more different than what they say. Right. There's a geneticist by the name of Richard Bugs, and he actually tried to do a fair comparison between the genome of a chimpanzee and a genome of a human being. So I've got some quotes from him. He says, 
the first thing we must do is line up the parts of each genome that are similar. Only 2,400 million of the human genome's 3,165 million letters align with the chimpanzee genome. So that's 76% of the human genome. Mm -hmm. Okay. So first of all, you just line everything up and see what matches, and you only have 76% match. Okay. Then... You take a look at the gaps, he says, account for the gaps, account for the single nucleic polymorphisms and the duplications, and now the total similarity is below 70%. We're getting closer to the banana here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's a, I've got a quote from Rick Durrett from a genetics paper, paper published in Genetics, it says, called Waiting for Two Mutations, and he says that just waiting for two mutations, the type that would make a difference in an organism where you have two, new t two mutations that are actually going to work together to help create a new protein. It, mm -hmm. it says, quote, this type of change would take greater than 100 million years. Hmm. So if the similarities between chimpanzees and human beings is below 70%, it is impossible that one could come from the other in 100 million years. Hmm. So rather than this being an evidence for evolution, it turns out it's a very strong evidence against evolution. Mm -hmm. At least now, again, for maybe some of our new listeners, we should point out that we're talking about macroevolution here. We're not talking about microevolution. Kirk and I both believe in microevolution or adaptation. We believe that Species do change over time. They adapt to their niche environments just the way God designed them to do. In a limited way. That's right. But one species doesn't change into a different animal. That's right. Not different kinds, like butterflies. I think last time I said there were 10,000 species, I actually got that wrong. There's actually 20,000 species of butterfly. Wow. So are we saying that you couldn't get one species adapting into another type of species of butterfly? Yes, you could, but you're not going to get a butterfly turning into a bird. Right. That's the kind of macroevolutionary change that simply doesn't happen. And there are limits in uh, DNA and, and whatever that prevent that kind of major change from happening. Exactly right. Well, Kirk, what about the evidence for homology? This is where evolutionists talk about other types of similarities. I mean, you know, if you look at the, the design of the bones in your hand, and then you look at the skeletal bones of, say, a frog or a lizard or... Or a bat. A, yeah. A, a bat, bat actually has fingers in its wings. That's, that's right. So evolutionists will say, see, these similar structures are proof that we have a common ancestor. Well, you know, we pointed to this out in the past that the reality is that it could be both a common ancestor or a common designer. Hello. Right. And, of course, no one knows what these common ancestors are. That's right. But they yeah. must be there somewhere. <laughs> That's right. Yep. There's a complete dearth of transitional forms. But now, hey, See, the, the way I see that, now when you get into stuff like that, you're moving away from science and you're moving into opinion, opinion and philosophy. When That's you're right. saying, oh, yeah. you know, they all had a common ancestor, but we don't know what that ancestor was. Well, well you just they, left the realm of science that it, with that statement. Yeah, they'll say that ancestor was bacteria, right? We all started from bacteria. We were growing up together. Yeah, oh, you mean you're talking about what's in between. Right, right? the missing link. 
Yep. That's still missing. Yes, they are. Now, they've also had a chance to compare the genetic pathways. As you know, we're getting better and better at looking at the genome and seeing how proteins and different structures are developed. Well, it turns out that many of these homologous structures, these structures that look the same, don't have the same genetic pathways when they're being developed. Right. So the eye of a bird will develop along completely different genetic pathways than the eye of a lizard. Right. Microbiology has been changing the way we look at almost everything. That's right. And this is completely falsification of evolution. Evolution would predict that they would follow along similar developmental pathways. And in reality, they don't. So where evolutionists are certain that there's particular animals that did not share common ancestry for most of their development, why is it that there are so many features that recur. This this is a kind of a repeated evolutionary. I think I saw an estimate one time that the eye, like a human eye, has supposedly evolved more than 20 times in unrelated species of animals. There's even, you know, that there's a clam that has little round eyes, just like a miniature human eye. Really? On, on, the, uh, yeah, on the edge of the clam where the, the fleshy part of the of the meat sticks out of the clamshell. Is that amazing? <laughs> really a conundrum and a... So each one of these different species would have had to have evolved their own design for an eye. That's right. Which is highly unlikely. Yeah. Well, it's even unlikely that could have evolved the first time. Right. So while we've got a little bit of time left, we might as well talk then about the evolution of vision. And, you know, this is something that was always a dilemma for Darwin and for evolutionists of his time, all the way up to the present, they're still having problems with how vision could evolve. And, you know, they they do suggest, they've tried to explain it, they suggest different models. Darwin suggested a model. Richard Dawkins and other evolutionists have tried to explain how it could have evolved, but their solutions really are clearly unsatisfactory. They just don't explain enough. There, you know, Kirk. There's all kinds of different eyes that exist, different ways of organisms having vision. But you really can't create any kind of progression of eye designs from simple to complex that actually work out in the natural world or even in the fossil record. Mm-hmm. So even though you could, you know, line up a bunch of eyes and and maybe put a smaller eye on one end or a less complex eye at one end and then line them all up by complexity just doesn't match any kind of a tree of life or any way either in the fossils or uh, outside the fossil records that you could figure that that organisms would have evolved so it just doesn't make any sense right it makes a good story but when you line it up to actual animals and the time periods they lived in it, it doesn't follow a natural progression that's right that's right the the simplest eye spot or the simplest eye, which we call an eye spot, actually requires enormously complex mechanisms in order to for it to function as a vision system because it's not good enough to just have an eye spot. You've got to have the nervous system, the vision cells in the brain that can understand and interpret what's going on, what it's seeing, what's light and dark means. So right. it's a lot more complex than what the evolutionists want you to believe. Well, that sounds like how we used to believe that cells were just a simple little mass of protoplasm. 
until right. microbiology came along and showed us that these these little cells are so complex they're like an entire city in each cell functioning. Yeah, that's right. It, 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 Amazingly complex. complexity. Yes. So things so, are not as simple as they seem. <laughs> no, they're not. And one of the amazing things I was showing the DVD Darwin's Dilemma to my class this morning, and it showed the trilobite. And the trilobite appears in the Cambrian formation. So this is supposedly the lowest layer in the fossil record. And here is the trilobite with, a, with compound eyes. Mm-hmm. So not only does it have eyes, it has compound eyes in a very complex system. You know, it's just amazing how is this very complex organ, vision organ there? And what about the nervous system to support it and the parts of the brain that would have to interpret the data? Mm-hmm. It's just amazing, you know, a, another refutation of evolution. And I'm sure, I hope most people know that during the Cambrian explosion, all the different body types of animals suddenly appear. So you have vertebrates, invertebrates, all different kinds, any kind of body style or virtually every body style that there is, is found suddenly in the Cambrian. And it all happens in just a fraction of time of the geological record. Right, and even evolutionists will admit that, and they admit that they're stumped as to where they all suddenly came from. Yeah, that's true. Their solution is, oh, we'll find out sometime in the future how they evolved or what they evolved from, but right now we haven't a clue. Right, (laughs) right. So there's eyes with complex design found in these low life forms. There's crustaceans, just an arrangement of eyes that just doesn't make any sense at all if Darwinian evolution were true. It's not the kind of you know, primitive eyes being in primitive organisms the way Darwin would have predicted. Right. So, in fact, you get, you know, incredible variety of eye design, structure, number of eyes, location. I think even Darwin himself was, Darwin himself was a, um, knew about the Cambrian explosion, didn't he? And even he was puzzled by it. Yeah, he did. In fact, he said that it was a that it was evidence against his theory. Yeah, he was honest enough to admit that. So, and and he knew that evidence against his theory was evidence for intelligent design. So, contrary to our email today, actually, even Darwin knew that if you could disprove evolution, then that was evidence itself for a creator. Right. You'd be left with creation. So. The most primitive eye known and the most advanced eye known are both found in the body type called cephalopods. And so this is, you know, again, a complete refutation of evolution. Yep. Okay, it looks like we're just about out of time. Yeah, we've got about a minute. So I guess, well, I've got a few more notes on eye evolution, so let's finish up with that. Okay. The um, One of the points I wanted to make is that evolution doesn't explain the existence of a vision system, but intelligent design does explain. Right. The leading evolution researcher, researchers admit that they only have, quote, some understanding of how eyes have evolved. So they're, you know, really just scratching the surface. I well, could make a pun and say they're groping around in the dark, but yeah, well, I won't do that. There you go. Excellent. Well, thank you for listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And send your comments and questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. 
Join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,